You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Wisdom and Crickfizz's podcast series, The Greatest T20. Last time around we concluded that Chris Gale is the greatest batsman that T20 cricket has ever seen. And this time we're going to be looking for the greatest team that T20 cricket has ever seen. I'm Yazrana and as usual I'm joined by Crickfizz analyst Freddie Wilde. Hi mate, yeah, good thanks. Good and looking forward to this discussion after our, um, our, interesting, our interesting debate in the first week. This one I think promises to be even more interesting with maybe the... The winner not quite as obvious as it was first time around. Yeah, I've enjoyed uh, prepping for this week just because of the stories are so different. I mean, the biggest leagues in the world, you've got some IPL sides who people know quite a lot about, but you've also got some teams from domestic non-franchise teams that people don't know very much about. So, yeah. uh, and also I think as well, you know, in the early years of T20 so far, I mean, the guys who have, the, 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 the people who have become the stars are very much people rather than sides. So, you know, uh, Gale, the guys we spoke about last week in the bowling department, people like Narayan, Pollard, etc. It's 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 a format that's presented many heroes as individuals, um, and I think maybe the teams get a little bit less acclaim, and so that's why, yeah, you're right. It's an interesting discussion to actually try and um, shed some light on some of these stories around the actual sides who have been particularly dominant. Well, our special guest this week is none other than Darren Ganga, a long-time captain of Trinidad and Tobago side that will feature heavily in today's discussion. Welcome, Darren, to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, good day to you, uh, Yas, and to Freddie. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to debating uh, this entire issue of which team is the greatest uh, T20 team. So looking forward to the chat. Awesome. So let, let's start with a team that, Darren, that you know better than most and that I think most of our listeners might not know that much about. So the Trinidad and Tobago team that you captained in the early years of the T20 to T20 format, you guys were really dominant. You won five out of the first six T20 tournaments in the Caribbean. You were Champions League runners-up in 2009. And going through the list of players you had at your disposal was, was remarkable. Some of the true legends of T20 cricket. You've got Dwayne Bravo, Sonal Narine, Lendl Simmons, Samuel Badri, Kieran Pollard. For, for a country with a population of just over a million, why do you think you guys produce that kind of talent? Well, if I can just contextualise uh, this conversation and, and, and let you know, this all started in 2006. And if you look at cricket in history, you would know that uh, the first T20 cricket match was played in 2003. The game was pretty much, and the format was pretty much new to everyone on the circuit, on the landscape. Um, I could recall clearly we were so caught up in trying to improve our standing in terms of test cricket um, that this was just a side, so to speak, 
Uh, at the same time in the Caribbean, we had the advent of Salon Stanford, uh, a person who was uh, living uh, in, uh, in Antigua and I think it was St. Croix. And he had a, a good interest in the sport of cricket and, and, and helping in the development of the game in the Caribbean. That led him to investing in the Stanford 2020 tournament, which a lot of people are aware of back in, in that period in time. I was still at the helm of uh, the first class team, the 50 over team. I was still playing uh, international cricket for the West Indies. In fact, in 2006 was my best year in test cricket where I scored the most runs there for the West Indies in that calendar year. So I was at the top of my game and really the focus was more test cricket and 50 over cricket. And that is where a lot of players had invested their time, their energy, their resources, because if they wanted to play for the West Indies, that was, would, those were the, the avenues that you chose as a young aspiring cricketer. Uh, having said that, T20 cricket was, was just brought forward. We, we only learned about this tournament through our territorial boards, that there is going to be a tournament and a, a tournament that will feature an abbreviated version of the game. So proved to be an exciting and dynamic form of the game. It brought a lot of new spectators to the game in the Caribbean. And what I must highlight in, in, in this podcast is the fact that it brought a new, I would say, era and dawning in, in terms of West Indian cricket because, uh, one, it was able to unearth talents that we would probably not have had the chance to see. I can talk from a Trinidad Tobago contest. Karen Pollard was a young man playing domestic club cricket in Trinidad. He had the built-in stature of long arms, you know, tall, you know, somebody that was athletic, uh, had, a, had a good understanding of the game. And this is where he first started to play for Trinidad and Tobago. And, and we all know where he's gone in terms of his, his career. So, so it was fairly new. We learned as, as we went along. Uh, I must say, whatever the West Indies um, achieved in T20 cricket, a lot of that had to do with the investment made by Salon Stanford and that tournament itself because... What it did, it made a lot of our players more proficient to this format of the game. And what it also gave West Indian cricketers, it gave West Indian cricketers first mover advantage. Here it was, we were in a, in a period in time, the IPL started in 2008. We were already playing Stanford T20 tournament in 2006. In fact, we were runners-up to Jamaica in 2006. And then we won that actual tournament in 2008. So... The likes of Chris Gale, Karen Pollard, Dwayne Bravo, even Sunil Narayan was in the background, but he was probably overshadowed by a Shobhan Ganga and a Dave Mohammed and a Samuel Badri, who were front runners, not only in the T20 format, but they were doing well in 4-day cricket and 50-over cricket. So we had an assembly line of young players now wetting their feet, so to speak, in this format of the game. And it proved to be exciting. The fans came on board. The money and the prize money behind a tournament like this was unprecedented. We were playing a, a four-day competition for approximately ten to 15,000 US if you played over the course of three to four months. And here it was, you played in a T20 tournament in the space of a month and you had the purse of a million US dollars to win. So everything was sparkling in terms of T20 cricket. The arrangements, more professional. professional. You had charter flights uh, bringing you to venues, taking you back. You were treated as a professional for the first time in the Caribbean. And that led to a different approach uh, from the players. 
And hence, you're seeing all of these things uh, on the international landscape uh, today. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I think that the, the money obviously seems huge. The jump in the money that was available to you obviously would encourage specialization, I guess, that probably happened in the West Indies before it did elsewhere. But I'm still intrigued to the, the, the talent available. Like obviously the money pays an impact and it encourages people to, to develop their skills, et cetera, and the professionalization help. But to have that number of players, world-class T20 players available from such a small, specifically in Trinidad and Tobago, from such a small place is amazing. Like, why do you think that Trinidad and Tobago can produce that many brilliant cricketers? Well, I, I think... Trinidad and Tobago is, is a subset of, of the wider Caribbean as well. If you go across uh, Barbados uh, to Jamaica to St. Lucia, you would find there's an abundance of talent, natural cricketing talent in persons, male and female. Sometimes the structure, the infrastructure doesn't allow for that talent to be realized. And, and, and that has been the big issue here in the Caribbean. Are our systems ready to take a, a, a naturally talented cricketer and put them through a process where they become a world-class competitive cricketer. That has been a fundamental challenge in the Caribbean. A lot of that developmental process is uh, left to the powers that be, and it's uh, sort of rolled out in a very ad hoc manner. The other thing I'd like to say about uh, T20 cricket and the West Indies and a West Indian cricketer, we are naturally adept and, and adapted to play this format of the game as against the longer formats. And the reason why I say that is, if you look at the physicality of West Indian cricketers, tall, big, muscular, athletic uh, guys with long levers so they can hit the ball a long distance, um, guys who are, who are multi-skilled, natural all-rounders, um, the system is not a system where you mechanically have to produce or create cricketers. A lot of the times you look at persons and cricketers who have gone on to play for the West Indies, and you see and you research the environment from which they've come. They've come from countryside environments where they wake up in the morning, they live by the seaside, they swim nearly every day in a natural environment. You know, they grow up with a lot of agriculture around them. So very, very healthy diets, you know, organic sort of uh, food and, and, and items that they, that, that they use. So you see the effects of that in the athlete himself or herself. And, and when you think about T20 cricket, it requires you to play in a fearless sort of manner. It requires you to play as you see, not to overthink, you know, to play in an instinctive manner and, and, and give your best. And, and that is what essentially are, are the components of West Indian cricketers. We, and I say we, uh, and I'm talking in a general sense, we find it very difficult to follow structure because of our instinctiveness as cricketers. And, and, and that is why I think the T20 version of the game is, is, is better or best suited for West Indian cricketers. The other point that I like to make, which is Trinidad and Tobago-centric, is we've got a very big softball interest. And, and when I say soft, cricket softball interest, meaning a lot of young cricketers play softball cricket competitively across the length and breadth of Trinidad and Tobago. And the, the degree of skill, the honing of skills, when you play this softball version of the game, it allows for talents like Sunil Narine, like Aaron Pollard, like Kevin Cooper, guys who would have invested a lot of their formative years playing softball cricket. So 
in that format of the game, you can never be out LBW. So you learn to protect your wicket. The only way you can score runs is off the bat. So you don't leave a lot of the balls. You don't try to miss a lot of the balls. So you develop that natural art for hitting the ball. And you play with a freedom. You play with a carefree uh, sort of attitude. And if you have that sort of grooming, then I think it's easy for you to curb that and to be a T20 cricketer. If you look at Sunil Narayan himself, yes, he's gone to a little bit of an extreme in terms of his uh, mystery and his unorthodox approach to bowling. But that skill of being able to bowl the Dustra, of having that action that he has, that ability to grip the ball in that unique way where people use would normally use, an off-spinner will normally use index finger and middle finger to grip the ball. He uses his middle finger and his fourth finger to grip the ball. So those sort of, I would say, unique approaches to the game came out of softball cricket in the Caribbean. And you find a lot of our current T20 cricketers, they still continue to play softball cricket where you don't really have to put a high value on your wicket. Your main aim is to see ball, hit ball, which is something when I speak to one of the top coaches on the landscape, like a Stephen Fleming. What he has said, and, and, and we all know about the success that he has achieved with Chennai Super Kings, he said that he finds that over the course and, 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 and the evolution of T20 cricket, the less you give to players in a situation, is the better, that they, is better they perform. So you don't want to confuse players and input too much information in players' mind. You still want players to have that innocence, that that, that, I would say, that clarity of thought when they play the game of T20 cricket, although it's you know, played in such a high-intensity environment. And it goes with, with softball cricket here in Trinidad. You go and you play that format of the game without thinking too much. So all those factors, in essence, I think, are, are factors which have contributed towards Trinidad and Tobago players and by, in, in a wider context, West Indian cricketers being so successful in this, the shortest uh, format of the game. Can, can you remember in, in those early years, um, you know, you spoke about that the Stanford tournament started in 2006, Trinidad won that one and then they won the next one as well, um, which I think was 2008. Um, can you remember um, when you were part of that side, obviously you talked there about these really talented guys coming through um, and you sort of touched a little bit on the methods that, that made you guys so good. What was it like to sort of, um, lead this sort of talented bunch of guys through these early tournaments and then famously on to what was a very good run on the ch- in the Champions League, which sort of then shot you guys to global fame. And, and from there, it's it has sort of all taken off. But yeah, can you, can you remember what those early days were like? Yeah, indeed. Uh, it, it was quite easy very early on because here it was, uh, we had started a process of uh, changing the culture in Trinidad and Tobago cricket. When I was appointed captain in the latter part of 2003, I'd gone through a, a process of seeing uh, captains gone um, and how they, they, they carried about their responsibility of leading our national team. And I, and I talk of guys like Brian Lara, Phil Simmons, Ian Bishop, uh, guys who would have had that responsibility when I was a very young player in a Toronto Tobago setup. And, and, and this is even a little bit of, of the time when I started to play international cricket. So I saw many of the do's and don'ts when it came to, to captaincy and I saw exactly uh, what the loopholes were. So, so when I was given that responsibility to lead Trent Tobago in 2003, I set about the task of uh, 
training and preparing in the right sort of manner and preparing with the right attitude. You know, instilling a culture in young players who are coming through that their approach to, to test cricket, if they made it to test cricket, should be the same approach they adopt when they played first-class cricket for Trinidad and Tobago. And there shouldn't be a drop in intensity in the manner in which you trained and prepared for tournaments and in the manner in which you played for tournaments. And that, in essence, was, was a culture that I was trying to effect in a young Trinidad and Tobago team. And, and that team at that time had uh, Dwayne Bravo, uh, Karen Pollard, uh, Sunil Narayan, Dinesh Ramden, Ravi Rampal, you know, all these guys, Samuel Badri, Dave Mohammed, all these guys who would have then gone on to play for the West Indies. And what we did is we developed an attitude where we wanted to win tournaments on the training grounds. So we trained really hard collectively. We pushed our, our board to give us the necessary support. So back then in, in Trent Tobago's cricket in the early 2000s, and even in West Indian cricket, you never had physiotherapists traveling with teams. You never had analysts around teams. And, and, and you never had that degree of focus in the different components of the game. And all these things contributed towards us starting a period of success for Trinidad and Tobago's cricket. We won our first 50-over title in 2004 with a very young team. And then we went on to win the first-class uh, competition, I think it was in 2004, 2005. Something that we've never done um, since 21 years uh, previously. So we started to jump on this wave of success, which spawned a different attitude collectively in all of us as players. So you had a Karen Pollard who was very hungry to play all formats of the game. Dwayne Bravo wanted to play for the West Indies. He got a little taste of that very early on. Sunil Narayan was there knocking on the door. I remember him and Kevin Cooper calling me and crying on the phone. This is when they, they, they qualified to play in the Champions League tournament for the second time around. I think it was in 2011. And they were called for a suspect illegal action during our domestic competition. And these guys were so uh, heartbroken that they were in virtual tears. And I had to make arrangements with our Ministry of Sport to get these guys to Australia to be tested and all that. So, what I want to say is you had a bunch of hungry guys, so to speak, uh, guys who wanted to make a name for themselves, guys who wanted to make an impression, guys who came from relatively modest backgrounds. And this was the only conduit to have an above average uh, lifestyle. A lot of them were still living with their parents. You know, they, they, they had menial jobs to have them go by. And this was a way out. And when you had the Silent Stanford tournament coming into, into fruition in 2006, and I spoke about that purse of a million US dollars, and every single game that you played in that tournament, even in the preliminary round, you had the chance of winning close to 30,000 US dollars per game. And, and this is purely on prizes for that particular game. The Man of the Match Award, I think they had an award for the best catch or the best play of the day. So when you took 30,000 US dollars and you split that with 15 or 17 guys in the squad, guys were starting to taste you know, success and material success in terms of the earnings that, that, that they were capable of. So you had this perfect storm happening. Guys were being motivated. Guys were talented. They were tasting success. And this only led to more success. So, so that made my job easy. Now, 
what I can also say on the flip side, we came runners-up in 2006. We lost to Guyana. I don't know if you guys could remember that horrible loss over the Samuel Badri Bowl. Anarsing Dinarain, they needed five runs off the last ball, and he struck that ball for six. We lost that inaugural Stanford T20 tournament. And we came back in 2008 and won that tournament. And that is the tournament which qualified us for Champions League in 2009. So what you had is you had guys now in 2009 as against 2004, 2005. Guys now going to the other extreme of the spectrum. So while it was easy in the formative years, in in my sort of uh, time as captain, and with guys who were impressionable and wanted to taste success, here it was in 2009, going into 2010, 2011, guys now becoming very, I would say, aggressive. Guys becoming a little bit more selfish in terms of what they wanted to achieve. And you had a lot of competing interests within a team. So you had guys now, knowing that they were going in Champions League tournament in 2009, wanting to define themselves on a global platform because we had already seen this IPL taking effect in 2008. Guys were seeing now another jump in terms of what their earning capacity could be if they were part of the IPL. So we were walking into Champions League in 2009 with guys with fancy hairstyles, wanting to be recognized, wanting to have a a, a sense of identity. And then after training and preparing thoroughly for that tournament, we, we, we got to India. And then I had a situation where everybody wanted to bat in the top three. Everybody wanted to bat in the top four. Whereas you've trained, you've played for close to five to six years, you have achieved success, you know, in, with a certain approach, um, with, with a certain methodology. And here it was when we got to India and the bright lights were switched on. And guys started hearing about the interests and, and, and what this tournament could, could deliver for them personally. I had to now move to a stage of man managing, disciplining guys, making sure guys understood that we were better collectively than individually. And whilst we could, based on our ability, we could fulfill different roles across our team, we had to respect the fact that we had other persons who were already specialized in certain roles. So that to me was a huge challenge where you had interests and individual interests sort of now dominating the collective interests of the team. So I would say it was a wonderful journey as captain. We, we achieved a great amount of success and, and we're talking yes, T20 success for Trinidad and Tobago. But I also want to say uh, complementing that T20 success was our success in four-day competitions in the Caribbean and in 50-over competitions as well, which we dominated. We're naturally moving on to talk about West Indies cricket as a whole. And one of the teams that we've got to talk about is the West Indies international side between 2012 and 2016. And who knows, maybe maybe 2020 or 2021, whenever the next T20 World Cup takes place. They won two out of three World T20s in that period. They're the only men's T20 side to win it more one occasion. Freddie, pundits often sound surprised when they realise West Indies are genuine contenders for these tournaments. But if you look through their size from that period, they're immense. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of goes back to that, I suppose, kind of almost lazy um, analysis that, uh, you know, West Indies in the 21st century 
have been on the decline and, and that's probably true of their test game although perhaps more recently they're experiencing a resurgence but the, the, the narrative around Caribbean cricket for, for a lot of the early years of the 21st century has been you know that essentially they're not able to reach the heights of, of the 1980s which is unsurprising given they were you know one of the the great if not the greatest test side ever to play the game and they're often compared back to that and it's always a sort of unfavorable comparison but what they've done in T20 cricket is they've essentially formed the first T20 international dynasty um, and, and a dynasty which is um, in many ways comparable to the dynasty that the test side created in, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, as you said, they've, they've produced many of the format's greatest players. Obviously, last week we spoke about Gale um, and Karen Pollard. Um, but then you can go through and that you can reel off. Like we spoke about Andre Russell too last week, Dwayne Bravo, Sonal Narine. These guys who have been you know, the leading figures of the sort of first era of T20 cricket. And, you know, all, all of that stuff there that Darren was talking about in terms of how the Caribbean almost got a bit of a leg up on the rest of the world in T20. They were, the first, they were among some of the first sides to take it seriously and the first sides to train properly for it. Um, and, and then tied in with what Darren said around the sort of natural athleticism of, of Caribbean cricketers. That all culminated, firstly, for Trinidad and Tobago in those early years in, in the Stanford competition and the Champions League, and then moving into to the World Cup. And, and that obviously started in 2012 with their first title, um, and then more recently in 2016 with their second title. And as a result, two World Cups, as you said, no other side has has won the World Cup twice in T20 cricket. They're definitely in the discussion as, as one of the great T20 sides. And I think one of the really interesting things about the West Indies, not only uh, it's not only about what they've won, it's about how they've done it. They brought a very distinctive style of T20 cricket and one that um, has had a huge influence on the game. Gale, I suppose, is almost like the totem for that. And that's that prioritisation of, of boundary hitting, of power hitting, um, they might sometimes they might sometimes face more dot balls than other sides, but they'll often hit more boundaries. And, and the the 2016 World Cup semi final against India is a very famous game. India scored 190 for two uh, in Mumbai on what was a good batting track, but they only lost two wickets. They could have probably gone harder than they did do, and the West Indies ultimately ended up winning uh, by seven wickets and with a couple of balls to spare. They faced far, far more dot balls than India faced who prioritised running between the wickets and strike rotation. But the West Indies knew that boundary hitting was what mattered. And obviously then a few days later in the final, that was emphatically proven to be the case with Brathwaite hitting four sixes to, to win the tournament and to win their second World Cup. And I think that sort of style of batting has encapsulated that West Indies side. And then also what's, what's often maybe forgotten is the spin bowling that they've, they've brought to the game. Samuel Badri was a revolutionary bowler. Um, Darren, Darren was a key part of that in giving him the ball in the power play. It was unusual for spinners to bowl in that period of the innings. He did that and he did it very well. Um, and then obviously Sonal Narayan has almost taken um, some of those lessons and extended them. Um, not only does he bowl the doozer, but he bowls very flat and very short. These are revolutionary styles of playing. It's not only what they've achieved in terms of titles, it's the way that the game is played. And that's the impact that I think that that West Indian side has. We're talking about greatest teams um, and they've won two trophies, but it's the way they've done it, which really stands out. Something that we talked about last week was um, how the formats are kind of diverging more and more as the years go by. And I was wondering, on Badri in particular, looking this up today, his numbers, he's only ever played 12 first-class games. So, Freddie, I was wondering... 
how much do you think uh, the format specialisation happening in the West Indies earlier than potentially other countries has helped certain players develop into like really world-class T20 players? Yeah, well, I mean, it's massively helped. I mean, the guys, a lot of the guys in that sort of, after after the um, Champions League and, and, and again, going back to Trinidad and Tobago, the, the guys who sort of basically became T20 megastars, they, the West Indies were very much the first country where we sort of saw freelance players, if you like, guys who didn't play so much for their country and went and played more T20 leagues around the world. And one of the hallmarks of that West Indies side that we're talking about was vast, vast T20 experience. You look at the, the list of records in T20 cricket, most runs, most sixes, most catches, most matches, um, they're dominated by West Indians and that's because they've played more of the format than anyone else. And, and I think that they, you know, when you watch them play, you can see that. They essentially understand the nuances of the game uh, better than many other players. You know, for example, let's take, a, take a, a comparable player in England. Josh Butler is a fantastic T20 player, but he's constantly still flitting between the formats. In West Indies, a few players still try and do that, but very few do. And as a result, that specialism, I think, um, has really helped the West Indies. In the, in the, in the coming years, it will be interesting to see if that's still maintained because more and more players are specialising. But yet again, as with Trinidad and Tobago, as with the West Indies, they got a leg up because they were ahead of the game. They were ahead of the curve. They took T20 seriously. They played more of it. They played, play, they took, they, you know, they trained harder for it. And it's, and it's no surprise that Trinidad and Tobago in the early years and the West Indies are definitely in the discussion as to one of the, you know, who, who is the greatest T20 side. Both of them are in the frame for it. Darren, if, if T20 cricket hadn't been invented yet, what kind of careers do you think some of these guys would have had? Like Andrew Russell... Kieran Pollard, Sinan Ryan, you know, these are some of the most skillful cricketers in the world in the last 20 years, but we've seen them display those skills predominantly in T20 cricket and white ball cricket. What kind of uh, test careers do you think some of those guys could have had in a different era? Well, I think there's no doubt that uh, these guys are talented in terms of the skill sets required to play across formats. Like anything else in life, if you dedicate your time, your resources, and you train with a, with a unity of focus in, a, in something you would be able to, to achieve a fair amount of success. So if there wasn't T20 cricket, I still think a guy like Andre Russell, Sunil Narayan, uh, would have played international cricket for the West Indies in the 50-over format, even in test cricket as well. And their focus would have shifted in, in that area. I mean, human instinct will tell you if, you, if you have an opportunity to earn 10 times the amount of money by putting 10 times less wear and tear on your body, that's a decision that you will make without batting an, an eyelid. And, and, and that is what I think has been the case for a lot of cricketers, not only in the West Indies, but across the globe. At one point in time, there was this big debate about loyalty to country as against loyalty to franchise. And it was something that really fractured a lot of the relationships that players had with administrators in the Caribbean because a lot of uh, administrators and even the spectators to a lesser extent felt that players were being mercenaries. They were choosing money and that sort of financial gains over pride and loyalty of, of playing for institutions like their country, like the West Indies, which is the collective team that players represent here at the international level. So I don't think that uh, these guys would not have made it in international cricket. I think uh, the opportunities would have been less because... With T20 cricket, you realize that it's not just about playing T20 internationals for your national team at the international level. There are so many opportunities for players now. Players who not ev don't even go on to play international cricket, they're playing in T20 franchise third-party competitions all across the globe. 
and making a living out of it. But what I want to add as well, in on the point of West Indian cricket, I know that Freddie would appreciate this. I, I've, I've gone back and I've looked at, uh, you know, the stats behind all the teams which would have participated in ICC T20 World Cups. I mean, that first World Cup um, took place in 2007. And if we look at that in the context of, of the T20 game, game itself, I said the first game was played in 2003. And it's only in 2004, 2005, it started to maybe mushroom into something bigger. So this was in 2007, nearly three years beyond the start of the game. You had an ICC World Cup being played. And since 2007 to the last World Cup in 2016, what I, what I want to say, whilst we analyze the greatest T20 team, I want to say that recent dominance is, is a lens that I would analyze all of the contenders. And the reason why I say that is when the game started, like around 2005, 2006, the game and T20 game has evolved. It has become more competitive as we are talking about the advantage that West Indies uh, had as a cricketing nation. Because they started to play this game since 2006 competitively in the Caribbean, they became more proficient than other teams because of their first mover advantage. Having said that, I think the world has caught on now with this format of the game. Initially, you heard a Ricky Ponton talking about he doesn't respect this format of the game. I don't think he will have that opinion now, today, in 2020. So whilst we analyze all these contenders in terms of the particular team that we feel is the greatest T20 team, I think we must look at recent dominance as a factor because that, to me, shows that all the contenders are on a similar plane because they would have had the chance to focus on developing their game, the skill sets, the tools. And, and, and that is why I feel the West Indies too, the fact that they won in 2012, the fact that they won in 2016, which is virtually four years ago, there's a certain recency there. Even with Mumbai Indians, you look and you see what Mumbai Indians have achieved as in, in the IPL. They've won that tournament every two years. They started in 2013, then in 2015, 2017, 2019. So that to me shows consistency and even consistency while a T20 game is evolving and becoming much more challenging. Why? While your competitors are also as good as you are as a, as, as a team. So those are the things that I will also look at. I think the West Indies in recent times, they've not been that competitive. The best years upon reflection to me would be from that 2011 period, 2012 period, up until that 2016 period. I mean, it will be a challenge for the West Indies to lift the title if the tournament go, goes ahead in, in, in October in Australia. But I would say that purple patch with the cadre of players that you guys are talking about, the Gales, the Narines, uh, all these guys, the Bravos, the Pollards, you know, they're aging now. Some of these players might not be there in a West Indian T20 team in 2020. And just just one point on that as well. The thing that's interesting about the West Indies is obviously because as, as the you know the freelancing that I sort of touched on has meant that quite often in between World Cups, the West Indies have often put out weaker sides and they've come back at the World Cup. And completely agree with what you're saying. For them to come back now and win another one, given that a lot of these guys are towards the end of their career, would be remarkable. 
But at the same time, we're also seeing the, the emergence of some really good young players too that would sort of represent a, you know, a passing of the, of the torch, if you like, to the, to the likes of Evan Lewis, uh, Fabian Allen, um, young, young fast bowlers like O'Shane Thomas. And it would be, I think, in this debate, the West Indies would probably go from a contender to quite strong favourites in this debate of the greatest side. If they could win the next World Cup under Pollard, it would be an amazing story. You know, Pollard being one of the guys we spoke about at the beginning, sort of the, the early um, stars of the format, if he was to, as an experienced player, lead a young side to another World Cup trophy, I agree with you, Darren. It's, it's, it's probably a little bit more unlikely than, um, than in previous years gone by. But if they could do that, that would be a hell of an achievement. Um, and it would be awesome to see. I, I absolutely love the West Indies to, to lift the trophy once more and, and just cement that. That uh, that title there is, you know, what, is the greatest T20 side. I think it'd be very hard to refute that if they could do that again. Yeah, my, my final point on that is I just wanted to mention that across ICC T20 tournaments, uh, the West Indies, uh, they've played 31 matches. They've won 17. So they have a win sort of percentage of about 54. Um, but this is also very interesting. There's a team with a higher win percentage than the West Indies in these ICC T20 competitions. That's Sri Lanka. So um, those are things for us to take into context. Um, at the end of the day, I also like the numbers. I like to see consistency. I like to see success. I think, you know, if you're also judging a team which is going to be concluded as the greatest T20 team, you want to see a team that is very successful, successful in terms of wins under its belt. And, and, and Sri Lanka is above the West Indies, but I agree with you. If Pollard could lift that uh, ICC T20 World Cup title in 2020 or 2021, if it's postponed, I think they will be placed on a different sort of platform uh, as being three times winners of this uh, ICC T20 World Cup. We can't have this conversation without talking about the IPL, of course. Freddie, which IPL teams have stood out over the competition's history? Well, there, there are three that um, I've sort of noted down. And then amongst those three, there are two that are clear. Um, so we've got Chennai Super Kings, um, who have reached the or qualified for the playoffs every single time they've played in the tournament, which is amazing. And they've won the tournament three times. Um, we've got the Mumbai Indians, who Darren touched on there, have, have won, won the IPL four times. Um, they've been a little less consistent, I suppose. Their results have gone up and down a bit. Um, but they have won it more than anyone else. And then there's Kolkata Knight Riders, who between 2012 and 2014, um, they, won the, they won the IPL twice and they won the Champions League once. Um, they're also in the discussion. Just They had a very a, a shorter period of success, but they were very successful in that period. And, and also, in fact, just to talk about them, because I'll discuss them and then we can maybe move on towards Mumbai and Chennai. The thing that stands out about KKR and I don't think that they are, as I said, in that bracket right at the very top. But they, they, um, they're particularly interesting because they sort of they changed the game in a way. They had a very poor start to the IPL. They're one of the weaker sides. They're one of the sides who didn't make it to the playoffs in the early seasons. Um, they then brought in a guy called Venki Mysore, who um, basically overhauled the way the team was run um, in a sort of general manager position, the kind of the, the likes that we see in, in US sport. Um, he placed a lot of emphasis on data analysis, obviously something very close to my own heart. Um, and with the help of, of an analyst, A.R. Shrikant, um, they basically overhauled the KKR squad. They famously released Saurav Ganguly, who was the sort of the, was the, the Prince of Kolkata, is his nickname. Um, and, and, and in doing so, they risked uh, the pushback, I suppose, of the city, who, you know, 
they were letting go of their favourite or, or the, 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 the favourite player of that city. Um, but, but they let him go and they prioritised signing you know, players using, using a lot of data, using, some, using analysis. Sonal Narayan was one player they picked up. Um, they built a very spin-heavy strategy with Narayan at their core. Um, one thing we'll see throughout all of the sides who've been successful in T20 cricket is prioritising home advantage. They used Narayan and a spin, a spin-heavy track in Kolkata to, to basically establish a fortress. Um, and, and across a couple of years, they won the IPL twice, as I said, and they won the Champions League. And in doing so, they bought um, they, they bought data analysis to, to, to the fore, um, and they showed what could be done again by taking T20 seriously. We talk about Trinidad doing and that in the early years. KKR took that on a step. Um, and they created a really uh, a, a mini dynasty, if you like. And I think after that point, other sides started to follow suit in terms of their preparation, particularly for the auction. So KKR are a very influential side in that respect. Um, but the two that stand out, as I said, are KKR, oh, sorry, CSK and Mumbai, um, who have won it seven times between them. And they've developed a rivalry, um, a really interesting rivalry. They match up, fan, you know, really, the, the two teams that match up in a fascinating manner. And we've seen the last couple of, well, the last year um, in the final when Mumbai won by one run. Uh, it was a very famous game. This is sort of, I suppose, the, the culmination of two sides who have battled it out at the top in the IPL for a number of years. Um, so, yeah, they're the two standout sides, Mumbai and Chennai. And I'm sure Darren's got some, some thoughts on those two as well. Yeah, I concur with uh, what you've said, Freddie. I think um, uh, Kolkata Knight Riders uh, deserves... Uh, mention as a team to contend for this greatest T20 side. Um, again, I think what what is um, sort of a limiting factor in KKR is the fact that they've not gone on to win many titles, and and I and I see that as as a lens through which we should analyze the greatest T20 team. Um, when you look and you compare Mumbai Indians and Chennai Super Kings, uh, these two franchise teams. They are superior when it comes to performances. Um, Mumbai Indians, as you mentioned, four times winners of the IPL. What I also would like to add is during those, uh, those times, they've also won two Champions League titles. And, and that is where they've had the chance to compete against the best uh, domestic clubs in T20 cricket uh, in, in, in a best of the best tournament. So that warrants mention and I think that takes them a little bit beyond the IPL setup itself and, and separates them from from maybe a Chennai Super Kings and if you're talking about consistency so it's wanting to win titles but what I also must give credit to Chennai Super Kings is the fact that in every single edition of the IPL that they've played in we've had what 12 editions uh, they've missed out on on two occasions so in the 10 times that they've played They've always made the playoff round. And that, to me, shows consistency in terms of the quality of this team. And, and we say that in the context of, of T20 cricket evolving as well, where competition got stiffer from opposing teams. And the other thing that I want to say about IPL teams is the fact that, yes, we spoke initially about uh, the West Indies team playing in ICC tournaments where you got the chance to play against other international sides. The IPL caters for players from all across the globe. And if you ask any cricketer across the globe where they would want to play T20 cricket, they will see the IPL. So what that means, it means that the best players across the globe compete against each other in the IPL. And 
That to me says that the standard of play is obviously going to be higher, if not even higher than an ICC T20 competition. Because in this um, period, we have seen a change in the format of ICC uh, T20 competitions. Because I think now we've got 16 teams. We've got a lot of the associate member countries getting a chance to qualify. So when you look at the quality of teams and the, qual and the standard of play, you sometimes come up against teams that are of a lower standard where you can straight away tell who the winner is going to be. Not in the IPL. Whereas you might have teams starting poorly at the start of the competition and then building momentum through the tournament. We have seen that with Mumbai Indians. They struggled to qualify for the playoff round and then they went straight through and won the title. So that alone, to me, is evidence that the quality of teams in the IPL is all similar and the competition is, is stiff. So the other fact is they've been able to win every two years. So it means to say over a longer period of time, they've maintained and shown that they are consistent whilst competing against the best T20 players in the world. So yeah. all those things, I think, gives Mumbai Indians a competitive edge over Chennai Super Kings and even the Kolkata Knight Riders. I, it's a great point around the, the, the quality of cricket because I think, you know, traditionally, and this is something that's very close to my heart, I've spoken a lot about it, particularly in these lockdown months, I've become involved in many a Twitter debate around the standard of cricket in T20 competitions. And historically and traditionally, cricket looks at international cricket and thinks that it's the pinnacle. Um, and I think when strong international sides play one another, like West Indies, England, Australia, India nowadays, if they play against each other, it is a very high standard of cricket. But Generally, as you said, the 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 World Cups involve uh, some associate sides as well, um, whereas the the IPL and, and other domestic competitions are generally involve fewer sides. And the ability for for teams to go and buy players from around the world means that they're very high standard of competition. And I completely agree with you when we're talking about this. You know, the, the, debating the greatest side, it's very much relevant to bring that in because the IPL is, I think, the pinnacle of T20 cricket and we're therefore talking about the two sides um, who have dominated it uh, across its history. Um, and just, just one additional point on Chennai, I think that um, stands out, as you said, Mumbai have won four titles, Chennai have won three. I think that that ability to reach the playoffs year in, year out is an absolutely astonishing um, statistic really because you've got to finish in, uh, as we said, the IPL is so competitive. Um, there are so many good sides. It's, there's a lot of change involved. You have to try and, you know, every auction you've got to release lots of players. Every three years you've got to release lots of players. Chennai have shown a remarkable ability to, to maintain a strong domestic core, which has been very much at the heart of what they've done well. Um, MS Dhoni's leadership and captaincy is, you know, invaluable in this. He's been an unbelievable leader, an unbelievable reader of the game. Um, and they've managed to basically uh, avoid the volatility of the T20 format. Um, I think that that's something that's, that is extremely valuable because T20 is a game where you can be up and you can be down, but Chennai have somehow managed to find a way to string together consistent results. Uh, and again, something we touched on with regards to home advantage, Chennai have done that brilliantly um, by building a, a team of spin bowlers for their, for their, for their ground at Chepuk, which spins a lot. Uh, and that, that's been key to their success over the years. When T20 started, I think a lot of people would have presumed that T20 was a young man's game. It suited players who were more athletic, better fielders, people who were quick between the wickets. Um, the, the CSK side that, that lost the 2019 final, 
they were dubbed Dad's Army on social media. I mean, going through their team, Faf Plessis, Shane Watson, Suresh Rayner, and Batty Rayudu, MS Dhoni, Bravo, Jadeja, Harbajan, and Imran Tahir. Like, average age of well over 30. Um, are all of you guys surprised by how older, older players have managed to still do very well? I mean, like, we were talking about the West Indies team earlier, and they're still one of the favourites for whenever the T20 World Cup will happen. It's, it's an old side. There's, there's no one approach to achieving success in, in T20 cricket. And uh, Freddie made a very good point that I, I wanted to, to elaborate a little bit more on. He spoke about the leadership. And, and all along this conversation, I've been talking about lenses through which we should analyze the greatest or, or some of the best T20 sides. And I think leadership has a lot to do with the success. There's a strong correlation with the leadership of a franchise and the success that it achieves. We're talking about Chennai Super King. You look at the leadership of that franchise. You see MS Dhoni, who's been the ultimate captain in the IPL. And Stephen Fleming moved from playing for Chennai Super Kings to being the coach of that team and having continuity in that role. So together, they've developed a, a recipe for success. And they've had the chance of investing in players we often hear people talk about uh, the investment that they've made in Shane Watson and how he has come to deliver at the right time. That could only come about from knowing, interfacing, interacting, understanding players. And you can't understand players if you chop and change so regularly. So I think you've got to give credit to Chennai Super Kings for the leadership that they have shown. And, and if we are to, to take that same lens and we put it on Mumbai Indians, which was first captained by Sachin Tendulkar, right? There was, you know, some degree of success, but that leadership was transferred uh, to Rohit Sharma. And when he took over the captaincy, it was a, a difference. Um, he, he took that captaincy in 2013. And coincidentally, that was the first year that Mumbai Indians won the IPL. In fact, they went on to win the Champions League tournament in that said year as well. They had won it in 2011. So leadership amounts to a lot. You see Rohit Sharma now because of his sheer quality, not as a batsman, but as a captain. So there is a strong correlation with the leadership, the success, and what they've achieved. And, and if we are to, to look at the other teams, we can, we can go across the board. You look at Calcutta Knight Riders. It started with Surav Ganguly. Then it went to Gautam Gambhir. And they brought in the sort of players that, that brought success for them, you look at West Indies team that won the, the, the ICC World Cup in 2012. Darren Sami had the chance to lead that side in 2012. And there was continuity all the way up to 2016 when he lifted the title again. So I want to say that whichever team we select as the best T20 team in the world, you will see a strong leader at the helm. Whether it's a leader in terms of the captain or the coach, you will see that 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 that, that sort of uh, showing up in the leadership of these franchise teams as well. Yeah, I mean, you you make a good point because you said you know there is no one way to necessarily win in T Twenty, but the one consistent thing is that stable leadership, both on and off the pitch. Um, yeah, you're right. Captains, tactically, coaches, and then and then guys like Venki, who I said at KKR from a sort of strategy point of view, and even analysts as well. I think that. Being able to have that stability in the decision makers allows you to try and ride out the volatility of the format. But 
you're completely right. There are there are, there is no sort of prescribed way for success on the pitch. And what's really interesting about Chennai and Mumbai actually is the different ways that they have had success. I spoke briefly about Chennai being a spin-heavy team, and that's because of the venue that they've got at home. They've always had a number of good spinners from Ashwin, Jadeja, uh, Murali, Jakati, and now in recent times Tahir. Um, Harbhajan has gone there too. They've always built their game around strong spin. Mumbai, on the other hand, interestingly, have not really done that. They've done. They've generally had a strong pace attack, um, and that's partly because of their home venue as well at, at the Wankhede. Home venue is such a big thing in building a T20 side, um, and the Wankhede's got quite small boundaries generally, um, and it's far better suited to quick bowling. And I think we've seen Mumbai often prioritise quicks. Obviously, Lastif Malinga has been a player who's been there throughout their history. But they've often paired him up with some type, well, certainly one other overseas quick bowler, like some McLennigan. Um, and then sometimes we've actually seen them pick three, you know, three quicks, three overseas quicks, Malinga, McLennigan, someone like Jason Berendorf in recent times as well. Um, so there's two very different strategies there. And that shows, I think, that encapsulates the fact that you, there is no one way to win. Um, and whilst Chennai in the, in the batting department have been quite stable, quite steady early on, and then Dhoni's been the guy who's finished them off in style, Mumbai have been a bit more um, fluid, I think, a bit more dynamic with their batting order. They've been flexible. Um, and, and again, Rohit Sharma as a captain, we spoke, spoke about Dhoni. Rohit's a very sort of intelligent, I think, quick uh, captain who's quite quick, quick on his feet, uh, willing to shuffle the batting order up and down. And I think it's just really nice there that we've got two sides that are so different. Um, and then my last point on this is um, Mumbai have actually shown that you can unlock Chennai. So Chennai have been very consistent over a number of years, but last year Chennai were beaten four times by Mumbai. Um, and that's because I think the strategy that Mumbai have got uh, and that prioritisation of pace bowling is what can unlock the Chennai side and particularly the death bowling, Bumrah and Malinga as a pair to stop Dhoni at the death. You know, Chennai relies so much on basically building up so Dhoni can come in and finish the job. Mumbai are the perfect team to stop that. So I think it's really interesting that those two sides are you know, the defining sides of the IPL and they match up wonderfully against one another. Just on those death, that death pair, Boomer and Malinga, obviously T20 competitions are ultimately decided by knockout games. So you can be as good as you want in the league season, but to win things, you've got to win knockout games and nerves come into it, all sorts of things like that. Do Mumbai have an edge in these knockout games? They, they've won their last two IPLs in finals where they've won by one run. Um, so how important are managing those death overs from a bowling perspective? Are these overs statistically where you see the biggest differences is in run scores? So if you've got uh, a Malinga and Boomer, a world-class death bowling pair, do you have an advantage over other teams? The death is certainly the period of the game when that sort of the, the, the idea of pressure um, gets to its sort of zenith, if you like. Um, and in Boomer and Malinga, there, are no, there is no better pair to deal with that. Um, and Mumbai, as a result, um, are, are well-placed to come out in those games that are decided by those death overs. They're well-set. Bravo's obviously been someone who's been in that role for Chennai over the years. But in the last couple of seasons, actually, we've seen death bowling become a little bit more of an issue for Chennai. Um, and so whilst you're right, Chennai have been very good at reaching the playoffs. They've also lost a number of finals and lost a number of tight games. Mumbai may be a bit more up and down um, in, in their consistency of getting there. But when they do get there, They've, they've been very effective at sealing the title. Leaving the IPL for a bit and going to Australia, the Perth Scorchers are, I guess, in a way, the CSK of the BBL, consistently good over a long period of time. Um, just, just quickly, 
Freddie, do you want to talk a little bit about Perth's dominance in the early days of the Big Bash? Yeah, I mean, it would be wrong for us not to mention them in, in this discussion. Um, as you said, the, the, the comparison with Chennai is a nice one in many ways in that they have been, um, between 2011-12, the first, the first Big Bash, and 2017-18, a couple of seasons ago, um, they reached the, far, they reached the they finished in the top four every time. Bringing that kind of consistency together, as we said with regards to Chennai, across um, a you know, format that is as volatile as T20 is very impressive. Um, and actually, they, 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 some of the uh, hallmarks of their side are similar to, to Chennai in that they've always maintained a very similar squad across the years. They've had a similar leadership group. Justin Langer was the coach for many of those seasons. I think he wasn't there in the first year when they got to the playoffs. But after that point, he was the coach. They had Adam Voges as captain. So they had that strong leadership, which you can also see in Chennai. They built home advantage. The Wacker um, is a very distinctive ground. Unlike Chennai, Chennai prioritised spin. Perth prioritised pace bowling. Um, but this, the idea of sort of making building a fortress at home was the same. Um, the the Wacker has short straight boundaries and has always been a pitch, as we know, that's conducive to to quick bowling. And the, the Scorchers across the years have built an attack of you know times they've got Mitchell Johnson, Nathan Coulter, Nile, Jason Berendorf, um, David Willey is an overseas player. Um, and, and, and that sort of strong pace attack has been at the core of what they've done. And in fact, strong bowling attacks generally, again, is something that is a theme throughout a lot of these sides. Uh, in the early years, they had Brad Hogg as a wrist spinner, and more recently, they've had Ashton Agar. So they've always had a spin option, but they've very much been pace heavy. Um, and that's been the sort of foundation of their success ac across a number of years now. Um, so no, Perth have definitely got to be in the discussion because of that. Um, but I think the key thing in terms of actually ranking where they stand is is uh, what Darren alluded to in terms of the standard. Um, the IPL is is out in front as the top T20 competition. The Big Bash is is not it's certainly not anymore. It used to be a, probably a little bit higher standard, but the standards dipped in recent years. Um, and as a result, I think they probably can't quite compete with the with the Chennai's and the Mumbai's and even probably the West Indies. Um, just because they've dominated in a slightly lower standard of league. But, you know, to, as I said, to get to the semi-finals every year um, has been a remarkable achievement. So, yeah, they're, they're worthy of a mention. Darren, you, you said earlier on that the IPL is the, the pinnacle of, of T20 cricket. Freddie wrote an interesting article on this, actually, on wisdom.com about comparing the quality of different leagues. So if, if IPL is number one, for you, what's, what's number two in terms of quality in T20 leagues around the world? Well, if you, if you say leagues, I'll have to analyze it a bit differently. I think, you know, what to me is second in terms of that strata of, of, of T20 cricket that falls just under the IPL, if not in certain matchups along the same lines of the IPL, it's the ICC T20 tournaments. You have teams there which are of similar ilk to IPL teams teams that are even more competitive on certain days and, and in certain matchups, but not as consistently as you will get across an IPL tournament. So I would say the ICC T20 tournament comes second to the IPL, and then you go through the, 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 the T20 leagues across the globe. The Big Bash League, definitely. There's a CPL as well that, that is quite competitive. You look at the players, you just have to take all the West Indian players who dominate uh, T20 cricket across the globe. All of these guys compete against each other. So the standard of play is obviously higher um, in the West Indies. Um, you know that there's the Vitality Blast in the UK. Uh, we have the Mazanzi League in, uh, in South Africa. 
We've got the Bangladesh League as well. So, so I would say maybe third is, is the Big Bash League in terms of fit and standard of play across the globe. Um, that is where I would see the Big Bash League. But it changes in time. Sometimes it all depends on the international players that you can attract in a particular franchise tournament. And that, to me, will determine um, how competitive that tournament is. One of the leagues that I forgot to mention is the Pakistan Super League, which I think is very competitive. I've had the chance of commentating in that league. And I think the quality of fast bowlers and more so left-arm fast bowlers you see out of that league is second to none. You're seeing Pakistan national team being the beneficiary of young talent coming through the Pakistan Super League. So it augurs well for world cricket to have talents being given the opportunity to compete against and amongst international players. That, to me, is only going to lift the, the international standard of play. Freddie, the Caribbean Premier League featured pretty highly, I think, in, in your article. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, it did, and, and sort of ma- ma- I think the main reason being well, two main reasons. One, there's only there's only six teams, so the talent can be sort of more concentrated. And then also, as Darren said, a lot of the um, the West Indian players who would be signed as overseas players around the world are domestic or local players in that league. Um, and actually, I suppose a couple of we, we spoke about Trinidad and Tobago at the beginning as, as um, obviously Darren's side as one of the early great great T20 sides in the last couple of years. Um, a couple of teams who've come out of the CPL are also, I think, again, worthy of a mention in this discussion, and that's Trimbago Knight Riders, which obviously Trinidad and Tobago again, but I think it's fair to split them into sort of a separate era. Um, the players that uh, played under Darren are, are quite different to the players that are now playing under Trimbago or in, in the Trimbago side, but they've won the CPL three times. Um, they've reached the playoffs every year. Uh, the CPL has, uh, since the early days of the Caribbean competition, has expanded the number of overseas players that are available, and Trinidad or the Trimbago Knight Riders, as they're called now, have often attracted some of the very best players uh, from overseas, the likes of McCullum and Lynn, and added that and Munro, and they've added that to the really strong Trinidad players that we mentioned earlier. So they're a very strong team who are certainly, again, worthy of a mention. Then the other side, really interestingly, um, Guyana Amazon Warriors, they've never won the tournament. Um, they've never won the CPL, but they've always finished in the top four they've all, 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 and qualified for the playoffs. Um, and last year, uh, in particular, deserving of a mention, as I'm sure Aaron knows, he'll have been commentating on it. They won every single game up until the final, which is a remarkable streak. I think it was 11 games in a row. To, to string together that kind of consistency in the T20 format, as we've spoken about with Chennai and Perth, is very difficult. Uh, and then they fell at the final hurdle to Barbados in the final. But they, again, were another side who used home advantage, picked lots of spinners, had a very clear strategy and it worked really well for them. So it's unfortunate that they didn't win last year because to be that consistent across the season was remarkable. Um, and again, I think because they've never lifted the trophy, we can't really put them in this discussion, but they're deserving of a mention because they've been a very consistent side across a number of years. Early on, we caught up with former England cricketer Paul Nixon to talk about some of the best T20 sides that English domestic cricket has seen and also Pakistani journalists. Hassan Chima about a Pakistani side that you've probably not heard much about. So here are those two conversations. Paul, thanks for joining the show. Leicestershire reached the first four final days. So simple question. Why were you guys so successful at the start of T20 cricket in England? Uh, well, we had some wonderful all-round players. Um, we were basically 
out of the championship contention at that stage. And we were really fortunate to have about five or six days rest in between before T20 started. A lot of clubs had like literally had end of championship, then come into T20. So we had all the time rest. We had a week of trying things out. We were trying, uh, planning each ball from the first ball you bowled to the slow ball to a bounce of the next ball, to all these various things. Um, and uh, we put ourselves under a lot of pressure with, with, with shouting and screaming at each other and trying to rush around and slow things down in different places. So we had time, I think, to really analyse it properly. We reviewed well as a group and had a lot of honest feedback. And, um, you know, you still need guys to, to, to do well. You know, Darren Maddy was up the top of the order and played brilliantly. Brad Hodge hadn't got a running county championship cricket. who started smashing it everywhere. We had a guy, Mark Clary, a fantastic high-class seamer from Australia, who had a brilliant slow ball. Didn't use his slow ball much in championship, but actually in this format, it was perfect. So, um, and he had a good bouncer. Um, we had a lot of good all-round cricketers. You know, I still think that the guys that do well in this format, their overseas have to perform. I think they, they do lead it. You know, Andrew McDonald was up in the batting for us for a few years, and... Um, and, and Maka did well 2011 for us. Um, he was a bit of a linchpin batting through, uh, a bit like an H.D. Ackerman role for us a few years ago. But Darren Maddy and Brad Hodge were exceptional and the rest of us sort of played, played roles around it. Last week we had Luke Wright on the show and, and he, he made his debut as a youngster at the start of the, uh, uh, you know, at the start of the T20 tournament. And he was saying how among senior players, they, they perhaps didn't take the tournament that seriously when it first came about in 2003, 2004. Was that something that you guys focused on as like a real opportunity to succeed in? Absolutely, yeah. And nice Luke Wright, ex-Lester Fox. Yeah, that was very much so. For us, it was the last chance of getting silverware. So we gave it our all. We really focused in on, 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 on that format. And actually now, as head coach of the club, we're really zoning in again on, on one-day cricket because that's where we can get bums on seats, we can get revenues in. Yes, we want to be competitive kind of championship, of course. But if we can do really well in white ball and non-test match grounds do well in white cricket, then it helps for the prosperity of your club moving forward. You enjoyed a bit of a rivalry with Surrey in the early days of the tournament. They got to the first three finals days. They won the first one. What are your memories of them as a team? Yeah, Surrey always a class act, aren't they? They've always you know, got very gifted batsmen, um, ballers. They play on good pitches. So their batsmen are very rarely out of form and out of nick because they're practicing, they're practicing on test match wickets all the time. So, um, you know, a high-class team, well-led by Adam Holyoke. His slow ball early was, you know, was a real menace to many teams. Um, you know, they had, they had serious players, you know, Wardy, Ramps. Um, Azam Mahmood was a serious all-rounder for them. You know, could win a game with bat and ball. His reverse swing at the end, bowling wonderful Yorkers. Nayan Doshi really, really did well with his spin. Um, somebody who's a canny operator and uh, having that left arm spin. And now, even now, you know, they've got Ian Salisbury and even the modern, Ian Salisbury then. So the modern day game hasn't actually gone away too much of actually Surrey's philosophy um, of having a couple of spinners, especially a leg spinner. Um, Ricky Clark was obviously a, a talented youngster. Um, and I remember then, back then, Tim Murta, who's a canny all round at Middlesex now. Whereas, you know, a good man to swing that ball and also, you know, take pace off it. So, Leicester-Surrey, we had rivalry in county championship cricket as well in the, in the 90s. 
Uh, it was us and them for many years after Lancashire dominated for a while before that. And um, yeah, we've always had some great banter against Surrey, some big games. And, um, you know, we still should have won. In fact, I can't remember which year it was now, but we lost to Somerset in a semi-final. Um, we, had, we had a few of our batsmen. We, had a, we were literally chasing five and over and we, and we kept losing wickets. And um, yeah, unfortunately, we should, have, we should have won that year as well. I remember I was gutted. One of, you remember bad losses, great games and bad losses. And that was a bad loss down there at the over. The, the only side who really compares with Leicester in terms of consistency in England is, is the Hampshire side at the turn of the decade. Freddie, they, they had a very strong bowling attack that kind of underpinned a lot of their success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you talk there. Just firstly, just on Surrey, Surrey and Leicester. It's, it's nice that um, uh, those two went up against one another. Surrey were obviously, as, as, as um, Nico alluded to there, the, the wealthier club, the big club with all the star names. Um, and that's why they were in the mix early on. And then Leicester obviously um, took it very seriously. They were one of the first teams to do that. Um, and, and it caused quite a nice early rivalry, which sort of, um, I suppose, defined the early years of the 2020 Cup. But you're right, Hampshire then, um, in around 2010, started to emerge as a real force. And, and they, they actually made finals today six years in a row and twice lifted the trophy. And, and in a tournament as large as the, as the 2020 Cup, or the Blasters, as it's since become known, that's a really difficult thing to do, to try and to, to be as consistent as that. Um, and, and, and a theme that I suppose will come out through this podcast series, we touched on it last week, and you mentioned it there again, strong bowling attacks are often yeah. the key to consistency in, in T20 cricket, and Hampshire did that. And more specifically, and tapping into a little bit of what Surrey and Leicester did, strong spin bowling attacks, um, Jeremy Snape obviously was, was a really key figure early on for Leicester, uh, taking pace off the ball. Um, just talk there about Surrey with um, Salisbury and, and Nyan Doshi. Hampshire did a very similar thing. Um, they had Danny Briggs, who played in all, all, all six of those years, I think, when they made it to finals day. And they'd often pair him up with uh, an overseas spinner. It would be a Freedy sometimes, sometimes Imran Zahir. And then on what would be quite slow, low wickets at the Rose Bowl with big boundaries, um, that 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 together that uh, created a very difficult environment for away teams to come and play in. Um, so yeah, that sort of spin-heavy, bowling-heavy approach was it was at the centre of what Hampshire did, and was and, and was partly why they were so consistent. They and they and they combined that then with with some really solid batsmen who would consistently get them to, to par totals. Um, guys like Neil McKenzie, who was a, a journeyman pro from South Africa. Um, O.A. Shah was paired with him in the middle order and at the top they had guys like Jimmy Adams James Vince who's obviously still a very destructive T20 batsman um, they put together a really strong side who enabled them to yeah, be very consistent across a long period of time You did right actually because you know, if, I, if I look back now one of our early strengths that happened was, was our spin attack and actually being a sort of unfashionable county the cameras didn't really come to Grace Road very often so nobody knew what our philosophy was apart from the guys that we played. So going into the finals day, people hadn't really seen as much, which was a real bonus for us. And um, if we look back, you know, Jeremy Snape with his moon ball and taking the pace off, short and skiddy. And we had Claude Henderson, who was an absolute you know, giant of a man, but a giant spin bowler. Claude, I can never remember Claude going for more than 26 runs in his, in his four overs. He was so consistent. Uh, and Brad Hodge, whenever it did turn or ever it showed a bit of turn or the wicket was keeping low, we always had Hodge up our sleeve as well to, to come on ball a few overs as well. So having those balanced sacks, but, um, you know, you look at some of the names again there, 
um, guys who've played international cricket from, you know, Oesha, Dominic Cork, Mascarenas, Sean Irvin was an international player. Um, McKenzie was it? McKenzie was a high class player. He dug Hampshire out of a lot of trouble if they lost early wickets. Jimmy Anders, uh, Jimmy Adams was so so uh, dangerous up front. Um, you know he, he would pull balls just back of a length as soon as he gave him a hint of width. He was a real diamond for them for many many years. Actually, uh, he was a he was a really terrific um, player and um, fin- you know finished very early. I still believe he had. Much more to give, but um, yeah, they also had Michael Bates keeping wicket, who was a high-class operator. We all rated Beatty as a keeper, um, and you know, and he could bat as well. He wasn't a rabbit; he could bat. Um, but he, him up to the stumps put pressure on. Even if you know, at Corky at times he'd come up. He hardly ever missed his stumping off Tahir. Um, you know, he was a he was a high-class high-class operator, a bit like James Foster at the time as well, Essex. What I tried to do, put pressure on the opposition, give them nothing, you know, get in their faces. The throws used to come back in like Jack Russell did. So, yeah, great, you know, great to see the keepers. You look at late, you know, young, young Ben Cox has helped win finals days. So the keepers are having big impact in the game. Do you think, Paul, as a keeper yourself, that specialist keepers, like the really, really high quality keepers who can stand up to pace balls, do you think they're underrated in, in T20 cricket? And would you like to see more of them? Um, yeah, I think now you've got to be a good keeper batsman. You, you have to be able to bat as well because, you know, the way the games are going now, you have to you have to have players that play so many formats. And um, as a keeper, you've got to be able to bat. Um, you know, academies now we're looking at kids keeper batters at 11, 12, 13 years old to come through, and you you spend a lot of time with them. But um, yeah, you you can't just have. I don't think you can't just carry a keeper just in case because. You know, you're going to need that at time. It's the way the game is. You've got to, you've got to make sure that you're actually, um, you know, you bat all the way down. What, what one thing that stands out, I suppose, amongst um, Hampshire and then um, with yourself at Leicester is, I suppose, the importance of a keeper is, is greater when you got when you've got players. Well, you've got a lot of spinners, so you're going to be standing up to the stumps. But then also guys who seamers who you might stand up to the stumps too. So obviously at Hampshire they had Mascarenhas and Cork. Um, the importance of keeping, I think, probably is 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 greater when you're in a situation where you might have to be standing up. If you've got to stand back, you might be able to get away with it a bit more. But as I'm sure you know, you know that sort of quick glove work and and you touched on it, the ability to occasionally pull off a stumping out of nowhere. Um, there's you know there's far more opportunities for that to happen if you are standing up to the stumps, obviously, and that and that depends on the makeup of your attack. Yeah, cool. very much so. Um, also, again, at the Generally, this you know it's it's not going to happen this year. But generally, standing up to the stumps, you know, in August time, the wickets are more used. There's more spinners coming on. You, you know, sometimes you could be playing twice, three times on the same wicket. So you know, and especially in finals days, the wickets, are, you know, generally you're going to be played on a used wicket at some stage. The ground by that stage are, are pretty tired. So you know, spins coming in, um, you know. Keepers, keepers games, are, you know, it's an exciting day for a keeper. You know you're going to be in the game. Just finally, you kind of alluded to it earlier about uh, your willingness at Leicester to experiment and how important that was. So you were talking about how you have those days leading up to the first competition where bowlers experimented with different kinds of bouncers, different slow balls, Jeremy Snape obviously with his moon ball. How uh, important do you think that was in the early days, like being, being able to think out the box of what was deemed conventional cricket at the time? 
I think it's very important. And Jeremy Snape was one of the leaders in that. Um, he's, and from there, he sort of helped set himself up with his sports psychology. He went to Rajasthan Royals. Um, and, and I think our, our tactics and our philosophies at that stage were very good. And even now, we still use them with Leicestershire. When I coach in the Bangladesh Premier League or the Caribbean Premier League, I've still used some of our early philosophies and they've gone really well, you know. I was fortunate to win the Bangladesh, uh, sorry, to um, win the CPL a couple of times and we got to a semi-final and got a Dre Rust in the semi-final um, this, this Christmas time. But um, yeah, we, having time and having that, having that just, just get the players together and just debrief really honestly and openly about how people felt, what worked well, batsmen against bowlers, that communication. And good teams do communicate together well. They're very honest and they communicate well together. And that's, that's vital if you're going to be successful. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. That was really, really interesting. Cheers. Thank you. Hassan, thanks for joining us. Um, first off, could you tell us about the Sialkot Stallions? I don't think many, if any of our listeners, will be aware of uh, their success and their significant success in the early days of T20 cricket in Pakistan. Yeah, I mean... Um... Pakistan started off with the T20 game earlier than most countries. I mean, uh, the, the domestic T20 tournament started, I think, uh, in 2004-2005 season. So, about like 18 months after the it uh, started off in England. But even prior to that, there had been like a uh, history of in Pakistan of like 25-over cricket uh, or Ramzan cricket, which is usually uh, anywhere between 15 to 25 overs, which has been going on since the late 70s, early 80s. So that's why when uh, in 2007 and 2009, World T20 Pakistan seemed to be ahead of the game because they had a lot more experience than other countries. And Sialkot Salians in the first few years of the Pakistan domestic game were by far uh, the best team in that. They won, I think, five tournaments in a row. They won. I think this might still have the record for something like 25 or 27 consecutive wins in the T20 game. And if you look back at them now, a lot of what they did back then uh, has been emulated by other teams. And what seemed, uh, even to Pakistani observers at the time, as slightly gimmick, uh, gimmicky sort of tactics have sort of become been solidified as uh, what the T20 norm is. Uh, who are some of the players that we'd, we'd have heard of that were part of the Southcourt team? So the, 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 that Sialkot team was basically built around two uh, components in batting and bowling. As far as the batting was concerned, it's basically they had Shoaib Malik in the middle order, both as the captain and as the middle order anchor, which, I mean, Malik's been playing that role from like with that Stallions team in the mid-2000, mid to late 2000s with Pakistan in the 2007 World T20, even as recently as the CPL last year, for instance. So, that role of basically being the guy who glued the middle order together, he always had that. But the key uh, batting reason behind their successes was Imran Nazir. I mean, uh, a lot of international observers, a lot of people who saw him in, at international cricket never saw the best of him. He never really made the leap to a higher level. But uh, at least in the domestic game, especially in T20 cricket, he was... For the lack of a better word, he was a domestic god. I mean, I was just look. Uh, Freddie uh, mentioned Sialkot to me like a couple of days ago, so I just uh, wanted to look up uh, Imran Nazir's numbers because that's not something like uh, that we sort of discuss or I, I'd really looked at. 
But considering that he pretty much played all his T20 cricket in the first decade of this century, the man had a better T20 average and a better T20 strike rate than pretty much any of his contemporaries, better than Sevag, better than Gilchrist. I mean, even right now, if you get uh, an opener who averages, say, 27-28 at a strike rate of 150, that's uh, considered elite. And he was doing this back in the mid-2000. Like, I remember there was this uh, tournament in 2009, I think 2008 or 2009, where Shalcourt won the tournament were unbeaten. And Imran Nazir was a top run scorer and he went at a strike rate in excess of 200. So that basically, he was basically the key to uh, allowing them, especially considering that no other team had somebody similar in that regard. Nasir Jamshed did that a bit for Lahore, but there was no comparison to what Imran Nazir was able to do. So he met the top. To, to find players of that nature, even now, you know, you can see, as I'm sure you're well aware with your work with Islamabad, <laughs> yeah. finding overseas batsmen is common in the PSL because the, the domestic players are not that explosive. So, I mean, Nazir is one who at Crickviz often will run some numbers and his historic, as you said, his historic numbers are phenomenal and he always ends up cropping up in amongst some of the all-time greats of the format uh, from a numbers perspective. He really was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, the thing with him, with Malik especially, was that both of them, the thing that, re- that they really have over their careers struggled against has been like a lot of lateral movement or uh, extra pace. But when they played in Pakistan, especially because the competition was a little diluted and that was one of the rare instances when Pakistan wasn't producing that many fast bowlers. And on the slower wickets in Pakistan, they could dominate it as well as anyone. I mean, uh, if anyone wants to do like a deep dive on numbers, just going through Imran Nazir's numbers in the mid to late 2000s, and I mean, compare them to pretty much anyone even right now. And it's, it seems strange considering how spectacularly he failed at the international level. But at the domestic level, he had no uh, comparison essentially. So it, in batting, it was him and Malik. But the key to their success, the key to the Pakistan team that we're going to discuss later, the key to pretty much every single Pakistani team uh, which has been successful throughout history has been their bowling. And that team had a, a bowling unit of Mohammad Asif, Abdul Rahman as the left arm spinner, Mohammad Asif for the power play, and uh, Rana Naveed as the death specialist. And then they'd have a bunch of uh, spinners, leg spinners, off spinners, like all rounders who could fill in the remaining eight overs. And by the end of their, uh, pretty much their dynasty, uh, the, they also added up the Razak from the Lahore team. So suddenly you had a bowling unit of uh, Asif and Razak in the power play, Abdul Rahman in the middle, Rana Naveed at the death. And for the fifth baller, you would have uh, Alex Pinder Mansoor Amjad, who ended up playing for Pakistan, but just played one uh, ODI, I think. But uh, didn't do that much or you would have Shoaib Malik bowling those overs and stuff like that so always they always had options they always had a lot of depth and they always had a lot of quality in their bowling which was actually the reason behind the success yeah and, and, and I mean we've spoken about it throughout the show today we, we, we've spoken about other sides uh, like Chennai and Perth who have been consistent and when we talk about their consistency we, we have we've, we've generally been speaking on a season by season basis like they've always made the playoffs and they, as you said with Sialkot they won the championship uh, five times but they won 25 consecutive matches yeah. at one point 
And then overall, over a span of um, 47 games, they lost just six. So not only were they season to season, they were consistent match to match to match. And, and, and I think that's why uh, we felt the need to mention them in, the, in this debate. Um, you know, as we've spoken about with, with Darren Ganga, the, um, the standard of cricket in the IPL and at T20 international level probably means it's not quite fair for us to put Sialcott along, alongside those guys. But in terms of the, the achievement they, they, they manage with winning just so many games and so rarely losing in a format that's so volatile, um, it's very impressive. And then, then that's something as well, Hassan, that's evident in the Pakistan side uh, recently from 2016 to 2018. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned before I finish off with the Sialko thing, one thing that they did have, like, which the Pakistan team in 2016 to 2018 didn't have was that they were the, the most experimental T20 team I've seen. Like, even right now, teams aren't as brave as they were. Like, they ended up having Mansur Ramjad, who, who's a guy who averages, I think, something like 15 or 16 uh, in the first last game, opening for them as in pretty much the Narayan role. They had Rana Naveed uh, sometimes going as the one down as a pinch hitter sort of thing. So those things which uh, even right now teams are a little reluctant to take part in the, were something that Salkot was doing. And you look at the Pakistan team which won I think 31 out of 34 T20s uh, between 2016 and 2018. And the thing with them was they weren't really that funky you could say they weren't that experimental. But they had a very in bilateral T20s, you get a lot of experimentation. You get a lot of teams just uh, trying to figure stuff out, trying to look at different players. That Pakistan team had a very clear identity. They had power to hold pretty much the power play in the first ten to twelve overs. Uh, Malik average, I think he's averaged forty plus in the last four years in T20 international cricket. He would uh, hold the second half of the innings and then you would have everyone around them just play with complete freedom. I think Barber went at a lower strike rate than what the, the overall numbers were. But uh, it didn't matter because if he's averaging close to 50 and Malik's averaging 45, then like half your batting sorted. And again, like that Salco team, like uh, other teams that you mentioned, I, I think uh, it, that is generally true of T20 cricket. The success of that team went uh, to their bowling. They had Imad uh, with a new ball going at around six and over. Amir with a new ball and uh, at the death, and he in the last five years has gone at under seven and over. Then you have Shadab, who uh, is the second highest wicket taker since his debut after Rashid, and he goes at seven and over. So that's about 11, 12 overs where you're conceding probably 80 to 85 runs. So there's only so much that the opposition can do. Whatever they do in the remaining eight overs, even if they go at, say, 10 over, that's a score of 160, 165, which even with Pakistan's lack of resources in their batting, they were able to do it, uh, achieve over and over again. And if their bowling was exposed like the New Zealand series back in 2018, I think they won uh, that series 2-1 in all three games. They had to score 180 plus to win uh, the matches. But because... It, on smaller ground and on flatter wickets in New Zealand where their bowling wasn't up to the mark, the opposition wasn't either. So, and it's not like the, the 12 overs that I already mentioned, that it's not like the remaining eight overs were bowled by like part-time as you would have Hassan Ali, Wahab Riaz, Muhammad Nawaz or uh, yeah. Shaheen Afridi. 
already always produced so many good bowlers, and 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 in the last few years in particular, they've had a huge number of them. And you're right that that the success of that side was very much defined by that by that bowling attack. It's obviously a theme throughout many of the sides we've spoken about today. And, and another thing as well is um, sort of home advantage. I mean, they obviously didn't play at home. They played a few games at home. I think in their streak, they played seven of their matches at home, but they played at the UAE, which became a de facto home. It would be wrong to call it a home, given the lack of yeah. sort of um, home crowd, but they very much exploited the conditions there uh, very well. I remember a famous series against the West Indies, who obviously we've spoken about in length in this show. After they won the World Cup, the West Indies went to the UAE and Pakistan beat them on some low, slow pitches and with the boundaries pushed all the way out. And they very much used those conditions to their advantage, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, that's especially true for Abu Dhabi because that's like a pretty big ground. Usually they have like 80 meter boundaries. So uh, on wickets that the ball, uh, that's a wicket that the ball doesn't come onto the bat either. So what also Pakistan had was they didn't have this home crowd or they didn't have the sort of pitches that they might have in Pakistan. As you've seen, like uh, the switch from PSL in the UAE to PSL in Pakistan, the numbers you guys must have looked at. uh, I mean, there's a vast difference in that. But what Pakistan had there was they had very clear plans. So you had Imad and Fahim just bowling disciplined in the power play against teams who struggle to get the ball off the square. You mentioned that West Indies team. My favorite memory from that team is probably the Aussie team that came in, I think, 2018. They won the, Pakistan won the series 3-0. But the key thing in that was, uh, that was pretty much the best of the best of the big bash league. So you had guys like Darcy Short, you had Ben Maxwell, and so all of these guys in that team. But on pitches like uh, where the, the ball wasn't coming on, they were completely exposed. Like uh, the favorite scorecard that I have from that is in one of the games, uh, Australia at the end of the power play were 22 for six. So <laughs> there's not much batting you need after that. Yeah. And I think just one, one important point, just to wrap up on these guys, um, they didn't win a, a T20 World Cup because there wasn't yeah. a T20 World Cup <laughs> during this period. Um, I think, you know, they're, un, they're very unlucky in that the T20 World Cup was quite often scheduled two years apart. This was the one cycle where it became obviously a four-year affair. Um, is it fair to say they would have been one of the favourites had there been a World Cup in that, you know, during the peak of their powers? Yeah, I think that was, I mean, 2018 Pakistan T20 team was the best Pakistan team, T20 team, T20 team since probably 2007 one. Even the 2009 winning one or the 2010 one that reached the semi-final and eventually lost to Michael Hussey. Even they had like, they didn't have the consistencies or the success that this generation had. And I mean, it's a shame. Like if there was a World T20 in say 2018, I would have thought that it would have been a straight shootout between India, Pakistan, West Indies, and England for that, but that just never happened. And Pakistan have regressed since then. And it's the same for like Chalkot we mentioned earlier. Like uh, when they were dominating over here, a lot of Pak- people in Pakistan used to talk about the idea of a Champions League so that they could uh, actually show themselves as well. And when they ended up being part of the Champions League, I think it was in 2010 or 2011. Uh, by that stage, they were also at the tail end of their success. And I mean, it was like five, six years into their whole run. So it's like sometimes uh, when it comes to winning trophies and stuff like that, sometimes it just comes down to 
uh, not getting that tournament when you're at your peak. Hassan, thanks so much for joining us. That was really interesting. Cheers, man. Cheers. So we've, we've heard, I think, from about 13 different teams uh, today, uh, all, all very different. We need to choose one team. Darren, who would you choose as the greatest T20 side of all time? I would choose Mumbai Indians. Uh, again, the entire discussion, we've been analyzing teams on, on different fronts. And, and I think two other areas which I think Mumbai Indians will trump any other franchise team is in terms of value and net worth. If you, if you look at you know, what this Mumbai Indians team is worth, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. They're worth about $115 million US million. And you compare that to any other franchise team, in the world, I don't think uh, anyone matches it. The closest one would be Chennai Super Kings. Uh, the other aspect that I want to mention is the entertainment value. For me, West Indies uh, is very entertaining to look at in the T20 format of the game. Freddie spoke about it, the ability to hit boundaries, the athleticism, the carefree manner and fearless manner in which they play the game must definitely uh, be significant in this analysis. Mumbai Indians as well, with their fan following, the style of play, there is a component of, 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 of that West Indian element in there. You think about over the years, uh, Karen Pollard, Lendl Simmons, uh, all these guys, Shafin Rutherford now playing for uh, the Mumbai Indians, Evan Lewis as well. So in conclusion, I would say after analyzing all teams on, on the points of recent dom- dominance, on the points of quality of the opposing teams on the points of uh, strictly performances on the points of leadership on the points of value on the points of the entertainment value and the following i would conclude with mumbai indians being the greatest t20 side followed by the west indies who will be my second place team well i i mean i'm tempted to go for mumbai as well i think in in, in many respects mumbai have been uh, even by the best side, and as we see with their matchup against Chennai, they've beaten Chennai, uh, obviously last year, as I said, four times. They've now won the title more times than Chennai. I think at their best, Mumbai are a better side than Chennai. We've seen that they've had the, uh, the tools to unpick Chennai. Um, but when we're talking about greatness, I think longevity is something that, for me, Chennai edge Mumbai on. So Mumbai have won four titles, but they started winning in 2013. So they've won 2013, 2015, 2017, and 19. They've also won the Champions League twice in that period. It's a phenomenal achievement. They've been a, a brilliant team. And I want to stress they are, I think, a better side than Chennai. But in terms of greatness, I'm going to go for Chennai. And that's because I think they've done it since 2008, all the way up to now. They obviously missed two seasons. When they came back after their two-season ban, I don't think people thought they would still be in the mix. As we said, they had a very old squad. Um, but there's the fact that they've come back from that ban and just sort of dropped back into the ways they were before. Um, for me, greatness is really sealed by longevity. And at the moment, Chennai have just got that over Mumbai. That said, if, if, if the, you know, the IPL would have finished about last week, um, it had, had, had the uh, virus not got in the way, and I think Mumbai would have been favourites for that. And I think had they won it, I would definitely be saying Mumbai. Um, it's, it's very close. It's a fantastic debate. And as I said at the top of the show, T20, we've often focused on individuals and on players. Um, and I think as the format matures and gets uh, older and is looked at and analysed more closely, we'll begin to have these kind of discussions more often. And in all great um, rivalries, you know, you, all great players need rivals like Federer and Nadal, 
Um, and I think it's nice that in the IPL, we've got Mumbai and Chennai playing off one another. And I expect that rivalry to continue for, for many years. And um, I have no problem at all with Darren going with Mumbai. And I think he'll probably understand as well. There are plenty of arguments for Chennai too. I think we should go Mumbai then. They want they want it more times. I think that's that, that's enough for me. I think it's really interesting though if we have this conversation in a year's time, and if West Indies won the next T Twenty World Cup, that I think would yeah. make it a very very difficult conversation. Just because that would be dominance at a level that no one has come even close to in in, in on the international stage. Um, but we've got an answer. We've gone we've gone for Mumbai Indians. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been that's been brilliant. So many fantastic insights. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, this has been the second episode of Wisdom and Crit with his new podcast series, The Greatest T20. If you've enjoyed the show, guys, please do tell your friends. And if you've really enjoyed the show, why not leave us a nice review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.